0: This is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, this is Ben, this is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, my podcast. Happy New Year. Hope you had a good festive period. I'm exhausted already. It's only the 3rd of January. um, So I don't know what that suggests about how 2023 is going to go. Hopefully it's a good sign. Just means I'm kind of doing stuff. Am I though? So this week... I'm going to bring you Aaron Schumann and I'll introduce Aaron properly in a minute after a little bit of housekeeping as is usual. Uh, This is the episode that I've almost brought you by mistake before Christmas before realising at the last moment that, of course, I had to bring you the best of 2022 on that occasion. So that's what I actually did. And here, as promised, is the chat I had with Aaron. So... First off, this episode of A Small Voice Podcast is supported by Flow Photographic, a leading and internationally renowned photographic print studio in central London where the emphasis is on personal service and the creation of stunning prints. Flo's clients are invited to take their time, drink coffee and discuss their work with founder and hugely experienced master printer, Alex Schneiderman, who is also the Artistic Director at Photo Ox for 2023, so he can bring a wealth of experience to your work. The studio, which also carries out exhibition framing and installation, as well as publishing services, is located in central London, just 20 minutes from Soho and a minute's walk from Kensal Green Tube Station on the Bakerloo line. Recent clients include leading photographers such as Joel Meyerowitz, Puddy Summerfield, Jem Southern, Mimi Plum, Chris Anderson, Matthew Finn, Alice Tomlinson and Sunil Gupta, as well as Magnum Photos, Stanley Barker Publishing, the Howard Brinkberg Gallery, Huxley Parlor and other museums and art institutions all over the world. The lab is also home to Flow Photographic Gallery, a non-profit space that supports and showcases British documentary photography, which is currently showing process, environment and the print, a survey of 30 years of printmaking and photography by documentary great Ian MacDonald. So go to the Flow's website, flowphotographic.com and call them today to make an appointment with Alex to discuss your work. So what else? Uh, if you would like a brand new website for 2023 and you've been Procrastinating on getting that sorted out, just hit me up at my email address, ben at bensmithphoto.com, and I will sort that all out for you using the Squarespace platform. And uh, then you don't have to go through the agonising process of figuring out how to do it yourself. Also, this episode is brought to you by Charcoal Editions, the newest project of the Charcoal Book Club, a curated online gallery selling open edition silver gelatin prints. That means a unique opportunity for photography lovers like me and you to acquire beautiful silver gelatin prints that ordinarily would only be financially accessible to collectors and institutions. Editioning photographic prints is an invention a creation of galleries and dealers designed to increase scarcity and drive up prices, Charcoal Editions is rejecting that model. The purchase price of their prints reflects an equitable division between artist, printer and gallery. You're not paying for a signature or artificial scarcity, but for light itself captured within the fabric of black and white photographic paper. To ensure the highest quality possible, every silver gelatin print is handmade by Sergio Patel and the master printers at Black and White on White in Brooklyn, New York. And the motto there is Beauty Over Scarcity, which reflects Charcoal Edition's mission to return to the core of photography's democratic and accessible nature. They're offering listeners of this podcast an exclusive 10% discount through to the end of the year. Well, now we're actually in 2023. So is that still a Look, just go to charcoaleditions.com. Use the code ASMALLVOICE at checkout. You might still be lucky to get that 10% discount. That's charcoaleditions.com. So this week's guest, Aaron Shuman, is an American photographer, writer, curator and educator based in the UK. He received a BFA in photography and history of art from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts in 1999 and an MA in humanities and cultural studies from the University of London, the London Consortium at Birkbeck College in 2003. Aaron is the author of several critically acclaimed monographs, Sonata published by Mac Books in the summer of 2022, Slant published by Mac, which was cited as one of 2019's best photo books by numerous photographers, critics and publications and Folk published by NB Books which also was cited as one of 2016's best photo books by numerous people and was long listed for the Deutsche Borse Photography Prize in 2017 Aaron's work has been exhibited internationally and is held in many public and private collections in addition to his own photographic work Aaron has contributed essays, interviews, texts and photographs to many other books and monographs he has also written and photographed for a wide variety of journals, magazines and publications such as Aperture, Foam, Art Review, Freeze, Magnum Online, Hot Shoe the british journal of photography and more aaron's curated several major international festivals and exhibitions was the founder and editor of the online photography journal seesaw magazine 2004 to 2014 and is associate professor in photography and visual culture and the founder and program leader of the ma masters in photography program at the university of the west of england so that's Aaron, a genuine multi-hyphenate of a person and always an interesting guy to talk to. I hope very much that you guys enjoy listening to this wide-ranging chat I had with Aaron Schumann. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. I, It's like I can't quite believe we haven't done this before, to be honest, because you're such an obvious person for me to... Uh, to invite on but it's it's kind of good timing because you have re- released a new book fairly recently and i'd like to talk about that yeah, yeah. At, one, at some point yeah. it's called sonata um i was wondering about you know how we could kind of structure this little uh, chat and you're you're one of those you're a perfect example of a of a true multi-hyphenate aaron <laughs> you kind of do all these different things let's let's just cover for people who aren't familiar with with you let's just cover what you do you are of course you're a photographer otherwise you wouldn't be here yeah um but you're also um an educator you're a curator you uh write about photography and um interview um other photographers or that's that's sort of how it started i just really i really would love to kind of Give the listeners a sort of overview of, of how that's all kind of come about for you, really, because it's it's fantastically it seems to have been a sort of fantastically kind of organic process in a way that it's all, you know, it's all followed a very sort of logical uh, path, yeah, in a sense, I mean, but orga- not one you could have planned.
1: <laughs> organic is the right word. I don't know how logical it was. It kind of um, it was, it, you know, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants, really, and uh, it, it was it was all quite spontaneous. So I didn't really have a grand plan. Uh, you know, from the start. But um, yeah, first and foremost, I, I started off um, as a photographer being interested in making pictures. Um, and um, and after kind of spending a few years doing that and studying, and um, once I graduated from university, um, I was working as a freelance photographer uh, in New York, which at that time meant I spent a lot of time waiting for the phone to ring and sitting around you know, kind of think twiddling my thumbs, thinking, what can I do next? And, um, and so I decided to, I decided to start a, um, an online magazine for photography in kind of, this was around 2003, 2004. And there weren't really that many online presences at that, at that point, there were a few blogs out there. Um, but the idea of having a magazine online seemed, seemed, uh, kind of ridiculous, I think, especially a photography magazine, which often relies on print quality. Um, but nevertheless, I, I was kind of inspired by some friends that were working at various magazines and doing different blogs. And um, and so I, I yeah I decided to start this online magazine called Seesaw. Um, and I just followed a very basic kind of premise of showing several portfolios of photographers work who I, who I liked. Um, generally, they were kind of people who had met through the photography community or come across their work in a gallery or discovered a book that they, they had published. Um, but they were usually kind of unknown or emerging photographers. And then um, and then I also started using the magazine, magazine as an excuse to be able to have conversations like this one with um, some of my favorite photographers at the time mm. or, or people whose work I just discovered and got excited about. So um, every issue would have three or four portfolios um, and then also an interview with a photographer. Um, and, um, yeah, and it kind of grew from there. And so I started interviewing the photographers like Todd Heido, Stephen Shore, Richard Misrach, um, you know, and I had this excuse because I had a magazine with a brand kind of name, I could approach them yeah. and say, can, I, can we, you know, can we chat? Um, and can I interview you from my magazine? And they were really open to it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that kind of grew. I had never had any ambitions or kind of, you know, ideas of being a writer um Hmm. but it grew from there it's a very similar
0: similar principle to starting a podcast in order to then invite people to chat you know you you just need an excuse to do that
1: exactly yeah yeah no i was just interested in having these conversations but i i knew that i couldn't really ring up my favorite photographers and say i'm a photographer too can we hang out but but for some reason if i emailed them saying i'm from this magazine um you know which i was running in my bedroom by myself um they they were open to it, so so yeah. So I started publishing these interviews, um, literally just transcripts of the interviews that I you know edited for print, kind of, um, and that led to um, people discovering those interviews and then commissioning me to write write little articles or interview photographers for other publications and magazines or review books or exhibitions. And um, yeah, it kind of grew from there in terms of the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also out of out of that um, website. I started getting invitations to curate exhibitions. So um, initially it was, it was through photo fest in Houston. Um, they kind of contacted me out of the blue and said, we're having four exhibit, four kind of big exhibitions this year. And we'd like, you know, we're asking different curators to curate um, each of them. And we'd like you to, to pitch an idea for an exhibition, maybe you could curate one of them. And at the time I didn't really think of myself as a curator at all. I kind of said, I'm not, you know, I've never curated anything mm-hmm. in my life. And they just said, well, just do what you do on your website. You know, it's basically, you know, do your website, but on the wall. Um, show- yeah.
0: It's essentially what you were doing without really realizing. Exactly.
1: It. Yeah, exactly. Um, and because I was always kind of interested in, in mixing both contemporary works that I was discovering along the way and um, and also I had a real passion for kind of the history of photography. Um, yeah, I was kind of interested in that dichotomy or that relationship between um, how contemporary photography is carrying on certain lineages and traditions, but also developing and evolving them into new things um, in, in the kind of 21st century. So, so yeah, so I, I got interested in, in that idea of kind of thinking about photography that way. But I was always coming at these things from the perspective of, of a maker, of a photographer. I never... I never really pretended to be a critic or a theorist or, you know, um, have some kind of high-minded grand, um, philosophy about the medium. It was much more of, it was driven by my own passion, my own interest in trying to understand how other people make pictures and why they make pictures and hoping that that would feed into my own practice and my own understanding of what I was doing, because as you know, um, quite often you just make stuff and you don't quite know why you're doing it or, or mm. um, the, why the decisions that you're making, you're making them. And, and that's a really, I think, a good strategy when you're in the midst of it. But when you're sitting down to edit or understand what you're trying to do, it's really useful to kind of look at other artists and photographers and practitioners out there and try to understand, you know, how did they bring these things together into some shape and form that makes sense to me. So mm. that's what it was really about to start with.
0: All right. Well, that's a fantastic kind of overview, yeah. in a way, of everything. And 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 well, the only thing we haven't touched upon there is that you that then also led you into the world of education, yeah. Um, uh, and um, you know, uh, academia, which you I don't think had again seen in the in the stars, as it were.
1: <laughs> no, my, my my I grew up in a in a in I grew up in New England, in kind of Western Massachusetts, and and there's a lot of colleges and universities there. And academia is like is basically the industry of the place that I grew up. And my parents were always trying to push me into academia just because they thought, well, you get summers off and you get nice holidays and it's you know, yeah. you get to do what you love to do, but you don't have to, you know, um struggle and as a freelancer all the time. And um and I was always super resistant to it, as every kind of kid is when they're kind of being pushed in a certain direction. But inevitably I kind of stumbled into it. Um, um it you know, again, through seesaw and through doing some, some of this writing. Um, and to be to be totally honest, the first teaching gig that I got was, um, my wife was like eight months pregnant, and I was just thinking, uh-oh, I've got to <laughs> figure out how to make this work, you know. Um, yeah. So so I applied for a job to teach, and, um, and I was lucky enough, I think in academia, at least at that time, um, like history and theory was quite Divided from practice-based kind of things, and so a lot of universities had teachers that would, or or lecturers or professors, um, that would kind of either specialize in history and theory and teaching that side of things, or they would specialize in practice and helping people make work. And because I was kind of kind of walking the fine line between those two things through my writing and my own work, um, I I kind of was able to go both ways in a way in a sense and kind of yeah
0: soup yeah yeah. really really useful for that I mean incredibly important really it seems like that's the person you want you know in charge of things and I think you you basically had the opportunity to to create a course for yourself you know that you built the thing and um, you know sort of yeah
1: that was really lucky I mean five years ago that that kind of came about so I spent a good 12 years um, just doing kind of part-time you know, lecturing positions at different universities and going in one or two days a week, um, uh, teaching various kind of classes, both in undergraduate and and kind of master's programs. And then, um, yeah, and then UE Bristol um, approached me and said, we're thinking about starting up a new MA. Would you be interested in working with us and developing it? Um, and so, you know, along with my colleagues and, and other people there, we kind of, we had this really unique opportunity to not necessarily inherit... Um, a kind of format and structure that already existed, but that we could really develop it from scratch and, 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 and we could think about how, you know, what would be the best way to deliver this within, you know, within the kind of uh, confines of a, an academic university. And, um and so that's what we did. Yeah. We built, we built this course, um, mm-hmm. which is a master's program now. Um which we're really happy with. I think it's, it's proving to be, you know, based on what the alumni are going off and doing and producing and the work they're making. Um, I'm really happy with it. It seems to be doing what it's meant to do in terms of helping support students to both make their own work, but also find ways to put that work out into the world and disseminate it and, and, you know, and contribute to this culture and community that I, that I really Mm. feel, uh, you know passionate about so um so yeah that was really lucky
0: yeah and of course yeah just to reiterate you at the same time you're also you know producing work you are very much just- A practitioner as well. So there's a lot there. So what I'd like to do now, that's, that's a perfect overview. So if we, if we can, Aaron, I'd like to just kind of really kind of go back and break some of that down really, because, because there were some really interesting sort of inflection points in your journey, I think, and, and some very influential, those little moments where, you know, your whole life kind of turns on them in a way. And I think those are always interesting for me anyway. And, um, And the first one was, I think you you went and did your degree in in New York, right? That's
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. At at New Uh, York University at the Tisch School of the Arts. Yeah.
0: And your interest at that stage was kind of documentary tradition.
1: Yeah, I was very much interested in documentary and particularly kind of a a slightly outdated version of documentary. I was, you know, as as a 15, 16, 17 year old, all I wanted to do was was kind of shoot for Life magazine and National Geographic because that's what I was that's what I knew. And it looked exciting and adventurous and you traveled the world and you spent weeks on end, you know, being W Eugene Smith kind of, you know, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, I was really interested in that world of photography and, uh, that's what I kind of strove and had ambitions towards. Um, and to, Mm. to a certain extent was quite kind of limited by that desire. Um, because yeah, because I was really interested in, you know, shooting 35 millimeter, mostly black and white, um, and and mm-hmm. kind of doing what had already been d- done 30 years earlier um yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: and you, you're not the only one no. <laughs> i mean i think it's a very uh seductive um thing especially when that when you're that age i think that's the sort of stuff a lot of us kind of fall in love with yeah. and, and uh it's quite it's only natural that you want to sort of pursue that but then let's let's sort of i, I guess we're going to sort of ultimately explore why that didn't last really and that you know there was a there was a whole series of steps that took you away from that trajectory in a way yeah now now you wrote a very important letter or more importantly you got a a reply to it um and it seemed to me that I mean not to romanticize it but, but it really was a hugely influential thing because the advice you got in that letter um you took to heart and you have really followed it ever since so can you tell me about uh, let's reveal to them uh who the letter was was to and from
1: yeah so so um i was really i was infatuated with the work of richard Avedon. kind of when i was 17 18 years old my father had a had a subscription to the new yorker magazine and at the time Avedon was the um the staff photographer there so every week i would kind of you know pick up pick up my dad's magazine looking for his pictures um in it and um, tear them out and put them on my bedroom wall. And I was really infatuated with him and his work. And, um, and so when I got to New York, um, I started making lots of like street portraits in a, you know, semi vein of, of Avedon. I wasn't bringing around a white backdrop or anything, but it was kind of, I was looking for those faces and characters and also printing in a similar kind of high contrast style um, to like in the American West work. And, um, mm. and, and the university where I was, Studying, um, you you could have they they basically you could apply to have an ex a quote unquote exhibition in the kind of hallways on the way to the dark rooms, um it on on the eighth floor of this this kind of art school building. And um and so a friend and I asked if we could have an exhibition, and I put some of these these pictures on the wall, just kind of eight by ten fiber-based prints um in cheap frames and kind of lined the wall with them. <clears throat> and then um and because Abaddon was in New York at the time, I just figured I should invite him. I should see if he wants to come along to the the quote unquote opening, which again was, yeah. <laughs> you know, not much more than, than kids hanging around in a dark room, but, um, but yeah, so I, so I sent a letter to him um, to be honest. I can't remember exactly what it said apart from, I'm sure it just said, I love your work and please, you know, I, I am deeply inspired by it. And can you, if you're interested, we're having an opening of this exhibition and he wrote back, you know, surprisingly, I couldn't believe it, but I got this letter back from him, from his studio, it was signed by him. And it just, um, you know, it said, "I'm sorry, I'm very busy. I'm working all the time, day and night, weekends. Mm-hmm. I really don't have time to come to this opening, but um, but I really appreciate what you're doing." And um, and he and then he said something in the vein of, "I can't remember the exact wording, but um, you know, my only."
0: I'll read it yeah, out. Go for it. Yeah, I'll read. I'll read it out. The only, this was the, the second paragraph, the only advice I have is that you do something connected to photography every day of your life, and you'll be surprised what happens.
1: Exactly, and that's what I really took to heart. That idea of um, being connected to photography every day, something doing something connected to photography every day, because of course at that time, as a kind of 18-year-old, I just thought in order to be a photographer, you have to have a camera on you at all times, you have to shoot all day, every day, and of course you do, you do need to make lots and lots of pictures, but but taking that, invite, uh, that advice on board that you, that as long as you do something connected to photography every day um, it will lead to kind of surprising n- new things. And so um, all of a sudden that kind of world opened up to me where I realized that actually I was reading a lot about photography. I was going to exhibitions. I was talking to my friends who were photographers, you know, I was studying photography. I was um, interning at, you know, and working at different galleries and assisting photographers. And so all of a sudden I realized that like if I just saturated my life with things that were connected to photography um, that was just as productive if not more productive than than constantly making pictures without really reflecting on them
0: yeah I mean that's what's really interesting that he could have said take lots of pictures and that would have been equally sort of valid but he didn't say that It was just it's so interesting that he chose to talk in terms of just you know make sure you do stuff that's connected. Yeah. And that's, you know, really what you've done ever since.
1: It really is. And, you know, and it's not, it's not something I do kind of overly consciously. I don't wake up every morning thinking, what am I going to do that's connected to photography? But, but if you spend enough time doing it, it becomes a habit. It becomes, you know, it becomes a a part of your life, a part of what you do on a daily basis. And so, yeah, that that connection to photography is something that I've kind of carried with me ever since. Um, Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. So then... The next thing I think, which perhaps was relatively important, was, well, again, in in the the spirit of doing things that were connected, you know, I think you you've always been quite good at sort of just just applying for stuff and going for it, and maybe trying to kind of get gigs that you know you might not necessarily have thought you were qualified to do, but you seem to have. Was it a confidence or more of a kind of naivety?
1: (laughs) It was more of a naivety. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, I wasn't overly confident, um, but it was yeah, it was more of a naivety in the sense, at, the, at least the beginning, in the sense that like, why not? Do you know what I mean? Like, like it just felt like right, like exactly why not? Yeah, I was. A, what's what's to lose? Yeah, what's I, the worst that could happen? Yeah, I wasn't thinking. I'm the best person. I'm the most qualified. Like, of course they, you know, these people want me or need me or you know that sort of thing. It wasn't. It wasn't that at all. It was much more like the Avidon letter, like. Well, he's just up the road, so I might as well, you know, <laughs> yeah. see if he wants to come to the show. Um, right. And of course, like probably 10 years later, when I was 28, I wouldn't have dared, you know, to do that in a sense. Um, yeah, but, exactly. But as, yeah, but as yeah, an 18 year old, it's like, well, like he's, you know, he's a nice guy. I'm sure you know, maybe he'll come down. Um, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> He can only say no. So then, but you did get a quite important internship with uh, Annie Leibovitz at at the sort of height of her powers in a way. Um, And that must have been quite an eye opener because, you know, she was the perfect kind of example of someone who was really kind of almost operating, you know, well, operating at an extremely kind of full on level. Yeah. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, what the takeaways ended up being from that experience?
1: Sure. I mean, yeah. So I got that internship again. There was just a there was just a poster on the bulletin board of the photo department at my university, just saying Annie Liebowitz looking for interns. You know, call this call this number, uh, or send a send a letter and a CV to this address. I can't remember. Um, so, yeah. Again, it was one of those things of like, well, why not? I've got nothing else to do tonight. I might as well just do that. So, um, yeah. I I ended up going there, getting an interview with the studio manager. I, de- I don't think I met her for the first three or four days that I worked there. I mean, it was mostly, I was working with the mm-hmm. studio staff, the manager, the assistants, the, you know, the people that were around her. Um, and then slowly but surely kind of um, started getting in- invited to participate in different shoots in very kind of minimal ways from being a coffee runner to a driver to, you know, just carrying gear around or painting the backdrop, you know, white again mm-hmm. after a shoot or whatever. Um but I guess the takeaway from that was, um, well, firstly, her office was full of books <laughs> um, of yeah. other photographers' work. And often, when you'd go inside the, in, when you'd go into the office, if she was working on a shoot or planning an, you know, an idea for a, a shoot, um, she, you know, there were just books laid on the table everywhere, wide open, with you know different photographs that she was looking at to kind of draw inspiration from. So that was that was really important. Um, yeah, she was also at the time. I mean, she was shooting a lot for Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone and doing all of that. But she was also working on a book called, which turned out to be called Women, um, which she was collaborating with Susan Sontag on. So that was kind of interesting to kind of see her relationship, not only on a personal level, but on a kind of professional level, with a writer and a you know a a a, a, a critic, a theorist about photography. Because obviously, I was reading Susan Sontag in my university and then i would run into her on the elevator up to the studio do you know what i mean and it was kind of not that i ever Mm -hmm. dared to speak to her but um it was (laughs) it was always you know it was just interesting to see that this photographer was engaged in and working with somebody else that was that was based on ideas not just on celebrity or status or whatever um so
0: that was also to see that she had no qualms about um you know taking inspiration from other people's previous work as it were you know it's all sort of we're kind of always referencing the stuff that's gone before and i suppose yeah i suppose that was you know you might at that stage be tempted to think that you know it's all about kind of originality or something you know but i guess yeah you know you're seeing in a way that it's not necessarily that yeah
1: no for sure i mean that was that was really that was really important and influential and something that i discovered along the way you know with many other photographers there was that idea we all have that idea when we start off that we have to be totally unique and original, do something new. There's this kind of pressure to kind of, you know, don't, you know, to, yeah, to kind of the next movement, the next phase, what's the next trend, whatever that kind of sort of thing is. And I, and um, yeah, and because, because I was, I was so kind of tied to a particular history of photography already. um, Yeah. It was really interesting to see how different photographers, including her, would, would, would draw inspiration from from the past and from what had already kind of come and been made but but then change it evolve it respond to it you know Mm. develop it into something new um or different in varying different ways um but you know i think i think that's really that was really important to me i mean um and then of course like her work ethic was almost you know i mean almost too much i think that was that was um, <laughs> that was that was also a lesson in kind of thinking. Like, is this really, you know, is this, am I am I ready for this? In the sense that mm. she was, you know, at that point was literally working kind of seven days a week, you know, twelve hours a day, um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was crazy, and it was highly highly stressful um, in in all sorts of ways, and in the environment that that was that 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 environment was in, and I was really, to a certain extent, I was quite happy. That I was only there two or you know two days a week or three days a week because yeah. um yeah that that was also um yeah that's really really challenging and i could i could see that, that how that was wearing on people um and, mm-hmm. and you know at, including her you know so i think um that was a little bit of a lesson as well because like i said i was you know i was interested in working in this kind of magazine editorial high you know high pressure kind of situation and i think that was a little clue to my future in the sense of like, is this really, do I want to hustle this hard? You know, she was at the top of her game, you know, like she couldn't have been more famous and more successful. And Mm. still she was just driving herself, you know, harder and harder and harder. So, yeah.
0: Which is probably about as much the job when you're at that level as doing the actual pictures is just you know that work ethic really you know that all that sort of treadmill and keeping on it and yeah. not sort of burning out i mean not everyone can do that i mean i am probably probably only the minority of people can just could do that yeah you know regardless of the actual photography yeah
1: for sure yeah no definitely <clears throat> yeah and i think also you know that world is gone that world is gone now to a certain extent in terms mm. of the way it's kind of dissipated the editorial market the fact that there yeah for sure you know there isn't this kind of high demand for constant new images of for you know magazines i mean there's there's the other demands but there's so many other photographers so um Hmm. yeah no i mean yeah it feels like a a different world to a certain extent
0: but so what, what what were the sort of things that started to take you away from that trajectory then i know you went to london um i know that perhaps the the point at which um wolfgang tillman's won the turner prize the first photographer to ever win the turner prize yeah um i think i think probably did going to that exhibition have a big influence
1: it did yeah i mean uh so yeah so i i came to london first around kind of 2000 um and um like i said i was i was kind of committed to this quite traditional documentary approach to photography and understanding of photography new york was a place that that kind of served that purpose in a lot of ways because it was very easy to go to lots of exhibitions of, you know, the 20th century greats and um, and also, you know, new things were happening but but, uh, but yeah when I got to London I realized that um, yeah I, I kind of landed here and there was this kind of big buzz going on saying that photography was the next big thing in London and um, the Tate Modern was being built and they were having a big show coming up, I think Cruel and Tender and then Jeff Wall Anyway, so there was like this this kind of buzz around photography in, in the contemporary art scene. And um and like you said, around that time also Tillman's was part of the Turner Prize. He was one of the shortlisted artists and then he eventually won it. So so when I got to London, I went to the exhibition to see it and um yeah, I had I mean I had a camera around my neck. It was a Nikon F2 with Tri-X black and white film in it. You know, a um, wide-angle lens. Yeah. I mean, I just—I was wandering on London, trying to be, you know, Cartier-Bresson or something, or um, you know, Bruce Davidson. But um, but I went to this exhibition, and um, I didn't understand it at all. It kind of blew my mind. Um, these pictures that were just kind of taped to the wall, pinned to the wall, all different sizes. The pictures seemed incredibly random and and kind of out of focus. And sometimes they were printed to cyan or too yellow or to magenta. Um, and 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 I was just kind of flabbergasted by it. I just, you know, to a certain like almost yeah, just speechless, um, not really understanding it or what what was going on there. And I left the museum um and I couldn't take a photograph with my camera for like the next <laughs> three or four hours because I just, yeah. you know, I was so shocked by, oh, wait a second, photography here is a very different thing than, than what I think what I think it is.
0: It sort of rearranged your your perception of what it, it did. was or what it could be. Yeah,
1: it did. I mean, I had, I was aware of, of Tillman's work previously in the kind of a you know, but but it was very easy to kind of ignore a sideline in my own brain because I was just focused on on this kind of documentary tradition. Um, mm.
0: But the way which was still you know a thing. I mean, yeah. I guess you know the, the 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 broad church that is photography. You know, has yeah. room for all kinds of stuff. So yeah. you could have kind of maintained that that trajectory
1: yeah i mean i just and i and uh yeah i I, yeah i just couldn't i couldn't see the bridge between the two i was really struggling with it but i Mm. but um but yeah and then eventually i was um yeah i was looking i was looking for kind of opportunities in london trying to figure out what i was what i was doing there and um there was an advertisement on the association of photographers website their kind of jobs page and um it was about three weeks after Tillman's had won the Turner prize. And it just said um, Wolfgang Tillman's looking for color printer. Um, and I thought, well, again, it was one of those, like, why not situations. Um, mm. And, you know, thinking, well, I can, I can make color prints. And to, I mean, to be honest, and I, and I, I'm saying this like <laughs> slightly, kind of in a in a funny way but um you know at the exhibition i mean i remember looking at the prints and being like well that's too magenta <laughs> you know <laughs>
0: yeah these is sh- shit prints. <laughs> yeah you so just I thought saying... <laughs> well i, I can print i can print as well as him
1: yeah exactly yeah. i think i thought you know i, I might as well be, be go into there and see if i can like you know correct these colors or whatever so yeah. um so I, yeah so i applied for the job and he was really kind really you know really welcoming he said yeah come on in the reason that he could now hire a printer. He had been printing all of his own work up until that point, but now that he'd won the Turner prize, he had a little bit of spare cash. So he was starting to hire a few more assistants and a few, you know, like uh, people to do the legwork, you know, to do the kind of like printing and stuff for him. Um, So, yeah, so I got, I got that job there again, not really understanding his work or not really appreciating what he was trying to do. Um, And to a certain extent thinking he was a bit of a, you know, like by looking, by the impression I got from the exhibition was it was kind of like really random and chaotic and spontaneous. And um, there wasn't really any kind of rigor to it. It was much more kind of just this freeform approach to photography. But when I got into the studio, he, I realized that he was incredibly rigorous. He was incredibly well-organized. His, the way that he curated exhibitions um, was, was by design. It wasn't kind of just this mm-hmm. kind of throw the pictures on the wall kind of mentality um, he really understood his catalog, and he really he treated his catalog of images not as individual photographs, but as a kind of collective work. So it was this kind of singular thing, rather than with each th- each image almost being a, p- a piece of a puzzle that could be, you know, mixed and matched with other pieces of the puzzle to create different ideas and so on. Um, the way he spoke about his own work was, you know, in- incredibly purposeful, and um, yeah. So I, I'll, you know, I, I kind of i. I got in that way I kind of discovered that that, that he was doing that I also discovered on the printing front <laughs> that I would kind of mm. make the perfectly color balanced print and bring it out and show it to him. And he'd say, can you make it a bit more magenta? <laughs>
0: right, right. And I feel like so you start to realize that yeah. actually there's a lot of method in the madness that it's not, it's not all just kind of you know random that yeah. it's, it's actually all being very carefully thought through. Yeah.
1: The print is magenta because he wants a magenta, not because he couldn't yeah. do it any better. Do you know what I mean? And, <laughs> yeah.
0: and
1: and the pictures are taped to the wall because he wants them taped to the wall. Not because, not because he couldn't He couldn't be be... asked to
0: find some frames. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Um, and then also, again, similar to the Andy Leibowitz idea, you know, his book, his studio was full of books. It was full of postcards of, you know, uh, old master paintings. Um, I, you know, on his bookshelf was the first time he had a whole kind of, I don't know, a, a line of books all by William Eggleston, whose work I'd always appreciated, but but never really spent that much time with. Because, again, it wasn't kind of social documentary in my in my kind of limited mind at the time. So on my lunch breaks, I would look through the the Eggleston books and realize that what Tillman's was doing was very similar, in a sense, to what Lebowitz was doing, looking at work that had been made in the past, kind of digesting it, reformulating it, thinking about new ways Mm. of of approaching that, mixing that with, you know, old master Dutch paintings, Caravaggio's, you know, all the things that were on the walls uh, around his studio. So again, he was coming from a a past and a place and a history and an understanding of his medium um, and then Mm. bringing something new to it and bringing new ideas and, you know, and the new, you know, the contemporary world uh, to that as well. So, so yeah, I found that really, really fascinating. Um, And that, that drew me also away a little bit from my very limited kind of social documentary focus to thinking about photography in a much broader sense, thinking about, you know, different ways um, pictures can, can have an impact and, and uh, and express things um, that wasn't simply literal. Um, So that was, that was really exciting to see as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like now, at what point did you start to find that this stuff was actually having a direct influence on the way you were shooting?
1: I mean, almost immediately because, well, to a certain extent, the, The kind of straight documentary stuff that I was trying to do, I was realizing that 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 kind of marketplace and world was slowly disappearing. Um, Mm. And I wasn't entirely sure if that was the kind of photographer I was going to be, I guess, also... um, I had a you know I had a few kind of horrendous meetings with with editors and agents where I I went I went to this I had a friend that was working at an agency called Saba at the time it was it was kind of I think it got taken over by by another agency um mm. later on but but uh at the time it was like a big um uh yeah it was a, it was a big kind of photojournalism kind of agency and yes. uh she was working there she got me a meeting with one of the directors um I brought my portfolio in and, um, and I had made these pictures, I'd gone, I'd, I'd gone to China and photographed these Tibetan monks, <laughs> and done this whole story on this kind of monastery in re- the remote regions of China on the Tibetan border. Um, and I had gotten a grant to do it. And, you know, but I made the pictures very, very, very similar to you that you'd find in any, any other story about Tibetan monks. But anyway, he opened the portfolio and just said, Oh, fuck Tibetan monks again. And
0: uh,
1: <laughs> and then he proceeded to go through my portfolio and kind of rip it to shreds for just being so, um, you know, derivative. derivative of everything that I had already, you know, that he'd already seen. Um, mm. And you know, basically said, you know, good luck, kid. Come back in five years when you've grown up a little bit. Yeah, um,
0: yeah that's brutal, but, yeah. but but probably probably necessary. Yeah,
1: it was it was necessary. It really shook me because I thought, oh wait, I'm I'm I have to make pictures about you know the here and now and in in ways that kind of express the here and now and i can't just be harping back to the past all the time so um so that was a big shock and then of course working with tillman's and seeing and starting to understand what he was trying to do and the way that he was using photography in an expressive format using color using composition it wasn't it wasn't so much about for him you know a most of his pictures aren't about the subject matter at all. It's much more about the atmosphere, the, the mood, the, the kind of, um, yeah, the kind of, even some of the titles are about the kind of like the tenderness, the, the emotion. Um, So I was really, you know, I was interested in, in those sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of, I started just trying to kind of put a little bit more of that into my, my own pictures. Mm -hmm. I started making a lot of very derivative kind of Tillman's esque pictures for about six months and then realized that, you know that he does his own thing and I can't I'm not going to copy that um mm. you know no those pictures have never seen a life day but <laughs> right, right. yeah yeah
0: but also I guess the other learning there is going back to the Tibetan monks is that thing of why is it me doing this like what you know everything you've done all the books that you've done yeah have had a direct relationship to you personally you know and and you've you know you've been working from a position of having some kind of uh you know close affiliation with yeah either a place or the subject of the photography yeah and so that, i guess that's a big one
1: it is it is and that's something i, I mean that's something i had to learn along the way it was that, you know by copying and and imitating all of these other photographers that like they're and also speaking to a lot of the photographers i was interviewing is that that people make work based on their own experience their own lives their own um perspective on the world and. Um, and I had to find my own you know i couldn't I couldn't just copy somebody else's perspective or think that my pictures are only about what's in front of the camera and not what's behind the camera so so yeah, I mean that was a revelation that came along you know in my late twenties when I started you know thinking, okay, well, who am I? what's my relationship to the subject matter? What do I have to mm-hmm. say about these things? what's my- you know experience sometimes it's based on my nationality, sometimes it's based on my Family history, sometimes you know it's based on all you know experiences that I had when I was a child. you know, but I'm not interested in necessarily making explicitly autobiographical work um, in a kind of diaristic sense, but I am interested in kind of infusing whatever I do with something that's coming from me because it's a question I ask my students all the time, you know this is a really good idea for a project, but why are you the person to make this project? Mm-hmm. what What do you have to bring to this? because yes, the subject matter itself might be compelling, but if you're just doing it in a way like I did the, with the Tibetan monks that it's been done a million times before, you know, th- it's not adding anything to the, <laughs> to the culture. We already have this. Big yeah. Amount, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult question, but yeah, I saw that in, especially in Tillman's work, you know, his work is, is entirely based around that premise of, of this is an individual's experience and perspective on the world at large. and, mm it's quite it's quite you know it's broad and it's all consuming and if one thing matters everything matters you know that kind of approach so yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then so like and you were doing did we talk about seesaw so but do you mention seesaw yeah. I'm losing track but we did mention seesaw so you were you were talking to all these amazing photographers people like Stephen Shaw yeah were you becoming interested in the process of asking questions or learning to ask questions or, or was it was it just much more about you sort of following your curiosity and and because you know you obviously had a lot of knowledge and understanding of photography yeah something I don't feel like I have particularly so I get terrible kind of uh, imposter syndrome when I'm talking to someone like you or doing the podcast no. and um uh, no I, I mean yeah. but I mean like you yeah it's like I don't know I'm just interested I I I know that I mean I just um I just got the oh yeah book Modern Instances yeah. by Stephen Shaw, the, the new um, book that he's, com- that he's brought out and um, I guess the, you discovered that you know there's a sort of long tradition of, of photographers writing about photography which I don't think not necessarily everyone realises yeah. um, and you know you it took you into into the process of writing yourself I mean not just not just sort of transcribing interviews but yeah. you had to become a writer basically had you ever explored that side of your
1: I had so? really, apart from like a few essays that I had to write for college and, you know, um, I was doing a little, I was studying a bit of art, art history when I was an undergraduate. So I was writing kind of, you know, essays for that and that sort of thing. But I never imagined turning it into a, a kind of professional or you know career kind of side of things. But I, there was there was one point at which kind of somebody said to me, look, you can't be a writer and a photographer. You have to choose one or the other. Um, and I kind of, and and. I took that on board thinking like, oh, okay, well, I want to be a photographer mm-hmm. then. Um, but then I started kind of questioning that and started looking at, into the history of writing about photography and realizing, like you said, that that a lot of my favorite photographers were also incredible writers. The people that I was kind of rediscovering or discovering um, in my 20s, people like Walker Evans or, or Robert Adams or Stephen Shore, you know, uh, these people had had not only made incredible bodies of work, but they'd written so eloquently and beautifully and Mm -hmm. from a photographer's perspective on how pictures are made, you know, why they're compelling, why they're beautiful, um, you know, or interesting how they work. Um, so all, so all of that, um, really kind of propelled me to realise that actually you can be a writer and a photographer.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I had similar experience, you know, because I came into photography from writing, so it it was the other way around for me. But, um, you know, I had a similar message kind of... uh, forced upon me yeah. and um unfortunately unlike you i did sort of um i didn't really question it i did yeah. sort of take it to heart and it, it's such bullshit yeah <laughs> you know it's like it comes from people who actually just um are threatened by the fact that anyone might be able to do more than one thing i think you know what i mean it's yeah I yeah
1: i mean it comes it, yeah i mean i, I don't think it's, it's so much the threatened but i think it's also about you know it's that question it's that kind of cliche of you know jack of all trades master of none kind yeah, of yeah exactly if, if you're kind of dividing your attention and 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 your energy on different things that, that you might not kind of be able to concentrate on one long enough to, to make something. But, but what, what really turned it for me was the fact that I started to realize that the writing that I was doing was having a really important effect on the work that I was making. And mm. so I started to so? T-
0: talk about that a bit. Well, again, it because was forcing I, you to question what you were yeah, interested in and why.
1: Yeah. It was forcing me to question what I was interested why, what the pictures I was, making were intended for. Um, And I think it was basically just, you know, it was almost like kind of turning a mirror on yourself. It's like, well, if I'm going to be asking all these photographers, all of these kind of questions, like, why did you make this picture? Where did it come from? Tell me this, you know, um, why did you choose this aesthetic or this camera or this approach? Um, You know, can I answer those questions for myself? And I realized, you know, I better start to learn how because if I, yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. It's like yeah,
0: I'm asking other people these questions. I'm, I I, ought to be able to answer them myself. Yeah, exactly. I think about that.
1: And I think, um, yeah, and also, uh, yeah, I think, I think that that was really important to me to understand that, that the writing that I was doing was also, you know, starting to change the way that I made my own work and think about how I justified it and how I, um. You know where I was getting my ideas from, and what what the intentions were beyond just making interesting looking images. So yeah, so I th- I think that that became important. I started to see the two things as one thing in a sense. Like it was mm-hmm. it was again going back to that um, Avidon letter. You know, writing is connected to photography. Making pictures is connected to photography, and they're actually kind of th- they work together. But I will say, you know, there was a kind of because because the writing, you know, I in in the first kind of 10 or 15 years of of working in photography, um, you know, I wasn't hugely successful as a photographer. People weren't really that aware of the pictures that I was making, but because of Seesaw and because of some of the articles that I was writing, I was starting to build a, a kind of reputation um, within that kind of, as a writer. And and I will tell you there, you got a point where I was really frustrated that people saw me only as a, as a writer or, yeah. a, or a curator um of course
0: yeah you, you kind know. of almost feel your sort of identity you know slipping yes, yes. away into a, you know going down a path that you didn't really want it to go down yeah but, and there was always yeah. that
1: awkward moment where it was kind of like where you want to say but you can't say well i take pictures too and you know <laughs> yeah. yeah you know all of that kind of stuff so i did make a very kind of conscious got, it got to a point where um you know i was really enjoying the writing and the curating and i still do i still do a, a, quite a lot of it but um but I I really needed to kind of rebalance the situation. And so around 2014, I kind of started winding Seesaw magazine down. I started concentrating much more on the bodies of work and the projects that I wanted to make that, you know, were more substantial Mm. and just trying to kind of even out the (laughs) the Seesaw. um, It
0: was very conscious. Yeah, You had to consciously do that. That was a very sort of deliberate thing.
1: It was because I got to that point where I was kind of, you know, in my – early to mid thirties thinking like, you know, okay, I've done all right as a writer. (laughs) I've kind of, you know, and, uh, but I've got all these pictures that I've been making and I don't really know what to do with them. And I also have all these ideas for more pictures I want to make. And, um, yeah, it was kind of a, a kind of really, you know, I need to, I need to balance the scales a little bit more and and Mm. make this work because otherwise I'm going to always regret not having pushed my own practice a little bit harder and, and, uh, yeah. and kind of maybe ridden the kind of, you know, the, the writer side of things a little bit too much. So mm. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well then, what, and one of the obvious ways of actually doing that is to is to make a book, of course, and get that into the world. Yeah. To to, to and and that's what you did with Folk. Yeah. Your first book, which was very well received, so yeah. it was almost like you know you sort of totally, you kind of nailed it. Just just not that you could ever have necessarily known, but yeah. just. I mean, again, uh, from the writing came some curating because that was that led on yeah. to people inviting you to curate. You you didn't see yourself as a curator at all. You said that before, but you did start curating, and then from that came folk. Folk was a result of some cu- curating that you'd done. Yeah. Um, maybe you could just sort of quite briefly explain how that came about then, and what what that book was about.
1: Yeah. So. Around that same time, 2014, um, when I was having these kind of self-doubts about my own practice and wanting to kind of spend a bit more time doing that, I got invited to curate um, Krakow Photography Festival in Poland. And, um, and that was a really great privilege and honor. And I was really excited about curating that festival. Um, but one of, the, one of the partners of the festival, one of the exhibit, exhibition spaces was the Ethnographic Museum in Krakow which is basically like a folk museum um of like folk art and village life and ethnographic kind of materials that had been gathered around that region of of Poland. Um, and I was really infatuated with this museum. It's one of those museums are one of those places that I spend a lot of time in, especially kind of strange not well not strange, but kind of not as you know, quirky museums and collections of weird and wacky and wonderful things. And um and I really loved this 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 museum. It was you know it had a slightly kind of old-fashioned-y feel, um, there were kind of these these incredible objects and rooms that were in it. And um, anyway, so the, the the museum was one of the partners and they said that they wanted to be a part of the festival, but they wanted the exhibition that took place in their gallery space to, to somehow reflect or represent or respond to their own collection. And um, And I couldn't resist the opportunity myself. Usually when I curate things, I keep myself out of it. I kind of play the curator role and I don't put my own work into it. But um, I kind of felt like, well, this was kind of a curatorial project, but also something that I could sink my kind of creative teeth into and f- photographic teeth into. So um, so I proposed an idea to the museum where I would explore their collection through my own kind of family history. My great-grandfather was from this region. Um, but that was kind of a pretext um, to allow me to kind of actually explore the museum itself and try to understand the museum almost as, as a village. I started treating the museum like a, like an ethnographer would treat a kind of a small village where the curators were the villagers and the objects on their desks were the kind of artifacts and implements. And um, and so, and I started, and I really wanted to make pictures as well. So, mm. so that book really, and, and so I had this exhibition which incorporated um, objects from the collection as well as my own photographs that I'd made in the museum and around the museum um and and then that it evolved over the course of the next 2 years into a into a book called folk um so that was really me dipping my toes into the waters of um of yeah like you said making a book and and making more pictures but it's still you know it's still very much a project that's that's partially curatorial there's quite a bit of writing in it in the sense of like mm. at the back of the book i have lots of the email exchanges and conversations that i had with um the museum Um, kind of trying to justify and explain what I was, what I was trying to do there. Um, So the book really was like, that was my first step into thinking like, okay, I'm going to do some curation here. I'm going to do some writing here, but I'm also going to make some pictures here and see if I can really, like I said, kind of have this holistic approach to my Mm -hmm. practice where my practice is making pictures as well as, you know, appropriating and curating and arranging and editing pictures as well as writing about those pictures. Um, so, mm. yeah, it kind of, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so the relationship between the words and the images, again, I think that's something that you became interested in, um, you know, in the course of, I suppose, you doing the writing and doing Seesaw. Yeah. And you kind kept, of you, you kept that with the next book, which was Slant. Yeah. Which, again, fantastically well received book it's it's much lauded and and um you know was yeah on everyone's best books <laughs> list at the time that must have been gratifying
1: yeah it was a huge it was yeah it was i mean like i said by this point i was having some doubts you know self doubt about what what you know if i'm calling myself a photographer what does that mean and are the pictures that i'm making actually interesting or is this you know is 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 what i what's interesting about me actually you know what i say about pictures rather than what i make in Mm -hmm. pictures and um um and so yeah so that book was was in a way a return to my roots I went you know most of the photographs are made within a kind of 20 or 30 mile radius of where I grew up I was photographing places that I had photographed when I first got into photography as a teenager 15 16 you know at that time I was wandering around saying to myself there's nothing to photograph around here this place is so boring and then 25 years later I'm wandering around saying, God, this place is amazing. There's so much to photograph here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was really, you know, that book was a little bit m- more of me stepping out and putting my pictures to the forefront a little bit more. And again, combining them with texts and the texts, the texts aren't written by me, they're appropriated, but um, but using mm-hmm. kind of text and image again together to kind of work together, but really trying to test the waters and see, you know, do the pictures that I make actually are they of any interest to anybody else? Um, and it was, yeah, it was really gratifying. Um, but, Mm. but I think, I think part of the success of that book again was also that, that holistic approach, you know, that it was kind of, it was incorporating sequencing arrangement on the page text, um, as well as, as photographs. So, um, so I really feel like that project came across really well as a, as a, as a book, Mm. um, you know, as a singular thing rather than necessarily a, a portfolio of images, um,
0: Yeah, 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 and also, but you know, there's always a lot of ideas going on. I think behind your your project, so the the way that you sort of kind of layer things, I think, is really you know fascinating. And I think obviously people respond to that. I mean, a lot of the listeners will know about Slant, and and I know you've talked about it extensively. But I'm gonna I'm gonna make you at least give us (laughs) the the kind of bullet the bullet points because yeah, you probably get fed up of uh, (laughs) of 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 talking about. So maybe you don't. I don't know, but um i I don't
1: get fed up i just end up repeating myself and i I, i'm very aware that there's like you know five recordings of me saying the same
0: thing (laughs) i know i know of course there is but yeah everyone just imagine if you're you know i don't know stephen shaw or something and you how do you kind of you know necessarily say anything different and i know you've you've i'm sort of late to the party with you Anne, because you've done a couple of the other podcasts some of my uh competitors (laughs) uh no i'm I'm only kidding i don't see it that way but um no you've 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 you know, I've talk, talked yeah. a bit about this stuff, but um, I I generally tend to think the best approach is to assume no knowledge on the part of 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 the listener. No, that's so, absolutely fair. No, you no, know, no, it's it, you know, it seems like we should we should kind of all explain now. Yeah, you you just brought a load of different ideas together with slant, and um, and it's it's lovely the way that that these things you know kind of are built. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah, I, we'll, I can give you the rundown. Yeah
0: give us the rundown and i'd love you to read a few of the the little um the little kind of clippings from from the newspapers out but yeah just explain how it came how it started because it started in the most sort of unlikely way really
1: yeah so yeah the book started off um i went home to visit my parents uh in the summer of kind of 2013 2014 um and uh and I was just hanging around. I picked up their local newspaper, which kind of arrives at their doorstep once a week, um, and was flipping through it, just looking to see what was going on around town. And um, and I discovered there was one page that was called police reports, which was basically um, in the newspaper every week. They would report all of the reasons why the police had been called out in the town um, over the course of that week. Um, and a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of those police reports were really kind of banal um, things like. I don't know, there were some drunken teenagers in downtown or there was a kind of small car accident on the highway or whatever. Um, but um, but within the mixture that I was reading on that, that first time, I, I discovered these really kind of funny um, and strange and surreal reports as well where people were kind of reporting all kinds of weird things. I'll just grab the book and see if I can read one out. Um,
0: yeah, thank you. Um,
1: so, for example, um, Citizen's Assistance, 4.14 a.m., a man shoveling snow on State Street told police he saw a strange orange glow coming from the eastern sky that might have been something on fire. Police determined the glow was probably the sun coming up for the day. Or a suspicious activity, 2.48 a.m., an Ann Whalen apartment's resident awoke to find someone on her balcony looking into her bedroom. The woman later told police she thinks she may have been dreaming prior to calling 911. So there were these kinds of, you know, hilarious, slightly... Almost like you know deadpan jokes, um, yeah in, in in the mix of all of these other things, like you know
0: um, and and you you don't think that there's any like i I can't help thinking that 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 someone with a sense of humor at that newspaper was you know <laughs> seeing them the way that we see them, but you you think there's no hint of irony that that actually it's just straight, and we're because I am you know I, I I had the same reaction to you, I do find them hilarious, I mean they are laugh out loud,
1: yeah. I'm in two minds about that because I think the way that these things are being presented on a regular basis in the mix of a whole bunch of other really banal kind of boring ones, um, kind of felt like, um, like whoever's writing these is, 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 I would think probably aware of the kind of humor there, but I also think that the style in which they're adapting that kind of very journalistic deadpan, straight, objective tone, um, Mm -hmm. you know, very short, compact sentences, um, you know, is, is a journalistic tone as well. And it's the way that they write all of them, whether they're funny or they're not funny. So um, I don't think like the first pers- the people that are writing these are totally naive to the fact, but I don't think that they're doing it, you know, in a way to intentionally um, play, right. play with the audience. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, it's a small town. There's not much going on as, as you can tell, you know, if people are calling the police because the sun's rising or because they had a dream, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's kind of a, yeah. I mean, it's it's reasonably quiet town. It's not crime ridden in in the greatest sense. I mean, there is crime around, but um, yeah. So, Mm. so that really fascinated me. And, um, and of course, because as a photographer, I was thinking, how do I, I'd really love to make a project about this somehow. I started collecting these. I asked my father if he would send them to me. Um, you know, back when I moved back to, when I came back to the UK, he would kind of send me every two or three months, he'd send me a package of, you know, the last few months worth of these police reports and I would cut them out and collect them. And initially I was thinking maybe I'd just do like a word project with this, you know, a kind of like a, a kind of John Baldessari kind of thing, um, you know, just just mm-hmm. print them big and that's that's enough. But,
0: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but um, uh, then I started thinking, well, I really do want to make, pictures i i started seeing a lot of these you know you, you can imagine those Those. i some of those some of those clippings they have a kind of visual element, or you can kind of imagine some sort of scenario so i started thinking about how i might respond to them photographically um, and then i also started seeing there were quite a few clippings that had um that were about photographers um and so there was this kind of character of the photographer that kept appearing in some of these reports where somebody called the police because a photographer asked to photograph their feet, or somebody called the police because a photographer was photographing their home in odd ways, or, you know, these kinds <laughs> yeah. of things. And I thought, okay, well, there's, there is something here. There's another one about, a you know, somebody was photographing a bank at night and it turned out to be an art, like a student at one of the local colleges doing a photography project. So, I was really familiar with being that photographer, that you know, as a teenager, as that kid, um, you know, walking around taking weird pictures, and sometimes people asking me what what the hell I was doing, Um, and uh, and so I thought, yeah, I really want to make some pictures about about these these uh, texts. So I started. So I I finally I went back um, the following summer with my camera, not really knowing what I was looking for, or or, you know, but I but I had some of these clippings in the back of my mind. and I had the style in my mind as well, this kind of deadpan, slightly ironic, kind of absurdist kind of approach to things. And I started just trying to see that place in that world through through that lens of, of kind of something being very straight and, you know, not particularly uh, f- interesting on the surface. But then within that, there were little hints and clues to something a little bit strange, surreal, absurd, sinister kind of happening
0: it was obvious to you from the start not to just do anything too literal, like the the slant yeah. that you're referring to. And, th- and this comes again from another layer, which is to do with uh, Emily Dickinson, the poet yeah. who was from uh, Amherst, but um, you wanted to, to sort of re- respond in a, in, a, in a tangential kind of way, it wasn't like you were going to go and photograph someone's feet and then yeah. put that picture of someone's feet <laughs> next to the the quote about the photographer. You know that was that was too obvious to you, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I felt that way from the start. At first, I was thinking like, okay, you know, maybe I have to photograph somebody's feet and I have to photograph the sunrise and and that sort of thing. And then I thought, well, that's a little bit easy and obvious. And also, a lot of the texts that I wanted to use were kind of almost, were impossible to do that because they were just kind of, um, yeah, they were bits, yeah, really strange or things that I would have to set up or do a kind of like, mm. you know, um, kind of constructed imagery kind of thing to And that's not my style. So, um, so yeah, so I just went back um, hoping for the best really and started to be honest. I, I left the clippings back in the UK um, and just went out to, to try to make, pictures, you know, and I made loads and loads and loads of pictures. Um, and then I got back to the UK after the first, you know, the first attempt and started to discover that some of the pictures matched up with some of the texts in kind of oblique ways, strange ways, kind of ways that weren't obvious. And that became a lot more interesting to me. So I started kind of Mm -hmm. thinking about how that might work. Um, and then, like you said, um, I, I went, I went. to, so, so a lot of the work is made in Amherst, Massachusetts, which like you said, is where um, Emily Dickinson is from. So I went on a tour, The fo- you know, the second time I went back to, to make more pictures, I went on a tour of the Emily Dickinson Museum. And during the tour, the guide started talking about Emily Dickinson's use of slant rhyme, which is basically where um, two lines of a poem that should rhyme, they almost rhyme, but they don't. So the mm. the two words that are kind of rhyming are obviously related to one another, but they don't directly rhyme. Yeah. Um I think know.
0: we'd call it a half rhyme. Some yeah. people would call it a half yeah, rhyme. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and I like that idea of um of something that created a little bit of um, you know, made, makes you a little bit uncomfortable when you read it that way because because you're expecting it to be really comforting as a, you know, it lands perfectly as a rhyme, but but of course it goes off on a little bit of a tangent. Mm. And um and so I started thinking about the texts and the images kind of having a similar relationship where they they almost r- rhyme with each other, they almost connect, but there's a kind of slight dissonance or a slight tangential kind of relationship between them. And that also mm-hmm. opened up the possibility in terms of the book design and the way that I was using the text and the image for multiple texts to kind of have a relationship to one photograph and each text kind of changed your understanding of that picture in, in a slightly different way. And vice versa, mm. you could have one text that was related to kind of three or four or five different photographs. And if you applied, you know, the same, the same formula, it would kind of it would change the pictures or, or the texts in lots of different ways. So I was interested in kind of opening that up and expanding that as well. Um, and, using, yeah. And, yeah, and using text and image in a kind of looser way that created um, a, a kind of bigger world.
0: Also, I don't know if uh, maybe something you and um, something that you had noted is that you know in a way photography's relationship to the truth is kind of a, a bit of a, a, a slant. You know, a half a half rhyme or a half truth is another that's another term that people use. Yeah. So that was that kind of gave you another layer to play with in a way.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that was really important because um, obviously photography has this kind of awkward relationship to the truth, and I was interested in. Um, there was a poem by Emily Dickinson where she talks, she she writes, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Um, and, and the poem is really about how if you tell people the truth in a very explicit, direct, kind of literal way, it can kind of, Which she says, it kind of, it will blind them. It will overwhelm them. It will. And, and I think she's talking about religious truth. You know, she was quite religious mm-hmm. and she was talking about God and that sort of thing. Um, but I kind of took it another way because she's talking about, well, if you tell these truths in, the, in a kind of direct, explicit way, it will really overwhelm people. It really kind of, um, you know, they won't be able to absorb it because it's it's just too much at once. But if you tell the truths in a kind of circuitous way or in a slanted way, there is a kind of a way that, that truth will kind of gradually seep in and people will mm-hmm. kind of discover the truth gradually. But through these kind of slanted or or kind of circuitous um, means and I was interested in that in relationship to the pictures that I was making, because like we, our conversation earlier, my practice kind of had shifted away from trying to be really literal and explicit and, you know, traditional documentary. Um, and I'd become more obsessed and more interested in, in in kind of that history of documentary that come, that, that, I don't know, Walker Evans or, or um, Paul Strand or other photographers have kind of explored where, where pictures are kind of poetically telling truths, but they're not, necessarily explicitly trying to explain a fact um Mm. and so i was interested in in how photography tells truths but um through these kind of circuitous slanted means and also Mm. the texts were doing that as well as i gathered the texts together i started to realize that yes they were all kind of funny and strange and hilarious but underneath the surface of a lot of those texts like you know worrying about the sun coming up or having a dream there were certain aspects of like this the The culture in that place um that were kind of they were revealing truths about i don't know a rising sense of paranoia or unease and then also other texts where there was a kind of signs of you know inferring kind of xenophobia or Mm. all of these kinds of other themes that were rising up so these funny texts and these kind of slightly strange photographs collectively together started kind of revealing mm. truths that were actually a little bit more serious than, than the, the component parts.
0: Yeah, and then you had a sort of a, a kind of a gift in a way was the wider context became, you know, Trump and, you know, fake news. Yeah. And there, there was a fantastic relevance <laughs> you know that you couldn't i guess have predicted yeah that just kind of came into play at that exact moment really you know sort of 2016 i think was around that time right
1: yeah it was i mean it was it was i mean i don't want to say it was fortuitous because it was a disaster but um
0: <laughs> well it kind <laughs> of was though <laughs> but, you know in a way
1: but i also wonder if like the texts you know and the, the things that i was seeing because because i was going back to my hometown you know as a as a kind of you know 25 years after i'd left it i was going back there and um and and so it's a place that I'm, like, so familiar with. I know it like the back of my hand. I, I feel like I do anyway. And I have a real, you know, a lot of my own identity is based on the fact that I come from this place and my understanding of who I am. And it's a place that has a long history and tradition and contemporary culture of of being very kind of progressive, very uh, left-leaning. Like I said, it's, there's lots of academics. There's lots of students. Um you know, It's very, quote unquote, open-minded and that sort of thing. But when I was going back in 2014 and then 15 and then 16, even though very few people in that area were kind of Trump supporters or getting excited about um, the possibility of Trump being president, um, I was starting to see these kind of slight slips in that culture. Um, and maybe... Maybe the people that did have those beliefs, the kind of more right winning conservative beliefs were starting to kind of come to the surface a little bit more and feel a little bit more emboldened to to kind of express themselves um, in an environment that that normally was you know the complete opposite so um so yeah, so I started kind of seeing that happening, and that was very worrying because um, because this is a place that I've always kind of had one image of and one idea about um, and I grew up there in the 1990s. And, you know, it, it was just, um, and so to go back there in 2015 and start to see a change and shift in slight ways, but in, you know, it, but it, it was, you know, slightly disturbing. I was getting culture shock in a sense. I was going to a place mm. that I knew, knew so well, and yet it was starting to look a little bit alien to me. Um, mm. And yeah. And then, of course, there was the the fake news and the rise of Trump and and the fact that he got, you know, elected and all of that was kind of, shock i mean I, i'm sure you remember i don't know if you're yeah i mean the morning i woke up and trump was president it was like or he had been like elect- yeah. he he'd been elected you know it was like have i think we- we're all
0: gonna remember that the yeah people of our, you know yeah. around for this it's a bit like when you've you know when man first walked on the moon but yeah it, there's no there's no element of of yeah i mean it was it was um but i, I was yeah
1: i was totally unprepared and un- i totally did not expect it do you know what i mean so it was Mm-mm. it was genuine. Yeah, like most shock. people yeah, yeah a and huge I, shot.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Sam, for the, for, also for, you know, for, for those of us in the UK, which, you know, you've, you've lived here for, for 20 years or yeah. so. I mean, the, the, the EU referendum result. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, it was analogous, you know, it was, it was a kind of mirroring of the same thing in a way. You yeah. know, it's just, uh, yeah. The same things, you know, at play. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I wanted to, one thing I wanted to ask you is that the, I think you mentioned at some point, um, you get this um, oh that that's what this is about moment as if you know mm. the work has its a sort of life of its own you know that <laughs> is suddenly revealed to you as though you're sort of almost a a passenger yeah. so it, that's a really interesting idea to me like did you did you have that that feeling with this work well, yeah I point? think it
1: happens with a lot of the stuff that you know all of the books I've made all of the projects that I've made I think um, yeah I tend to just follow. Like I said, I just followed my instinct. It was like, okay, I've read these texts. They're kind of interesting. Um, Maybe I'll go make some pictures and see if if I can do anything interesting there. Um, And then I think on reflection, you start to kind of see the layers. You start to see what's underneath. I mean, it's very easy. And, you know, we've all seen photographers speak about their work, and and I do this as well, where um, it kind of, at the end of the talk, it kind of looks like they knew what they were doing all along. But... (laughs) But to as as we all know, as makers, like you're kind of just following your instinct and flailing around. And sometimes you go down dead ends and sometimes you go off on tangents that prove productive or unproductive. And sometimes, you know, three months after you've uh, finished making the work and you're in the process of editing it, you come across a a text or a book or, you know, like a poem that all of a sudden kind of, opens your eyes yeah. to what you're doing again, yeah, yeah. you know, in a fresh way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was not, it's, it wasn't pre-planned. but I think by, you know, by, by following your instinct and your kind of um, suspicions about something, um, you can always in retrospect kind of figure out, oh, wait a second. I thought I was doing one thing, but maybe I was also doing this other thing. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, no, that's,
0: that's the joy of it. Yeah. 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 So, that, that kind of gives us an opportunity to, to come on to, to the your most recent book Sonata really yeah. because again you know I mean you can sort of tell us about what sort of themes you wanted to explore but and, and this one's quite interesting because you've almost deliberately excluded any any text yep. from it yeah. um, so you've moved away from that that combining of the two but it's a book. Of pictures from Italy what what was your relationship to Italy is that something that you just sort of um, came from holidays or something how did that
1: it did yeah I mean about? I mean as when I was when I was very young when I was two years old um, my parents were offered the opportunity they had a friend in uh, America who was Venetian um, he had some relatives in Venice uh, who um, had a very small apartment and they basically offered it to my parents over the the winter because they were leaving, they were going away for the winter. My parents at the time had a restaurant, so they could close, they usually closed down in January and February because it was off, the off season. Um, so, so yeah, so when I was two years old, we as a family went to, to Venice and lived there for two or three months. Um, mm. And I don't, I, you know, again, I don't have, I have very few memories of that experience. I think most of my memories are based on, family album pictures of, of that place and stories that my parents would tell me about it. Um, But ever since, whenever I go back to Italy and and it's a place that I've gone back to frequently um, for, you know, holidays and as a tourist and and with family members and so on, um, there are certain kind of like smells and sounds and scents that really kind of stir something deep within me. And I think it comes from that period when I was two years old, because I don't think I was consciously absorbing memories, but I was certainly absorbing kind of sensory memories. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the mixture of, I don't know, cooking garlic and cigarette smoke or, you know, bells ringing and pigeons flying or, you know, there were these kinds of things where I would, I would feel something really, like I'd feel really deeply connected to that place, even though I, I have no, claim to being you know italian in any way i spent two months there when i was two years old so um so that that was kind of my relationship to italy and it became and you know italy became one of those places that in my imagination partly because of my parents and then also the our culture at large um it became one of those destinations those places that was kind of seen as like let's you know we go to italy and we can kind of really live we can really have a you know we can eat well we can see amazing art we can experience this you know incredible culture and so there was kind of this mythology that built up around italy for me um that was related to both my relationships with my family members and also um you know my interest in art and culture and so yeah i mean so that was my relationship really to italy um Mm. and of course over my lifetime i've i've gone to italy with a camera many many times and i generally came back with pictures that were really cliche and obvious and you know it's kind of like photographing i don't know paris or something you you want to photograph people mm. jumping puddles and kissing on the street you, you know you can't it's really hard to not take the pictures that everybody's taken before um, yeah. so we're going to
0: london and coming back with pictures of uh, a guardsman or yeah, you know exactly. Buckingham palace or something yeah
1: exactly and so um so but i really wanted to challenge myself again. I was, I was testing the waters to see, can I make a, can I make a body of work that is purely photographic? Because, you know, the last two projects did, did rely both on my own photographs, but also on texts or on other objects or that kind of thing. So, um, so this was a real kind of test. And I thought, let's go to Italy and see if I can actually push past these cliches or, or absorb the cliches and somehow kind of respond to them in some sort of way. And I started also thinking about how, within Western culture, within European culture, you know, Italy has often been seen as this place to go to kind of live your full life. Um, the grand tour, you know, mm. all, of, all that whole history of, of tourists, you know, from, um, from Goethe to Stanley Tucci, you know, we go to Italy to, to live well, to eat well, to, to feel things, to have sensation or sensation experience. It's sensual. It's, you know, all of these mm. things. Um, so, yeah, I just thought rather than kind of re- rejecting that or pretending that I'm going to Italy and making a project about Italy as a documentarian, I want to make a project about about this imagined kind of um, thing that we we invest in Italy as foreigners um, and and also respond to it, you know, um, and see if what's what's actually there if if that actually exists. And I got really inspired by this this quote by um, Goethe in his Italian journey, he wrote a book in 1786, uh, uh, you know, which is basically a diary of his journeys through Italy. And, um, and he wrote about being, um, being kind of uh, compelled by uh, sense impressions. He talks about, you know, he describes it as a sense Sense impressions. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Same thing that you're already referring to. Yeah. It's so interesting.
1: Yeah. So when I, when I read that again, that's one of those moments where you don't know what you're, Doing until you stumble across something, you know. I read that was like on page I don't know ten of his Italian journey, and I just read that paragraph where he talks about sense impressions and he talks about trying to going to Italy and trying to see the world through clear, fresh eyes. Well,
0: let me read that. Yeah, he said, "Can I learn to look at things with clear, fresh eyes? Can the grooves of old mental habits be effaced?" I found that fascinating because it yeah. seems like he's he's talking about neural pathways there. Really, yeah. you know, he's talking about plastic neural plasticity. You know, right. in in 1866, Frickin yeah, very interesting. Obviously, they didn't know what that was about, but that's yeah. really what he's talking about, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, and and that was what I wanted to do with my pictures as well. You know, and, and I think what all photographers are doing when you take out a camera, it's, you know, can I see the world yeah. with clear, fresh eyes? Can so I-
0: okay? So here's the million dollar question then. So how do you do it? Like, yeah. did did you try, and did you find it possible and if so how the hell does one do that <laughs> so interesting
1: yeah i mean i i i i feel like i did when i look at these pictures my my intention was for the pictures to not necessarily be about the s- subject matter although the the subject matter is important but i wanted them to almost to have a almost like synesthetic quality so whether you kind of feel them You know the textures in them, or you hear uh, hear them, or you kind of smell them, or you know taste them, or whatever it is. I I was trying to kind of see if I can imbue a photograph with with sensory experience, you know, sight as well as all of the other senses, Um, you know. And hopefully, for me, the pictures do reveal that. When I was editing the pictures, of course, I took you know thousands of of pictures, but when I was editing them, I was trying to edit them down to the ones that genuinely kind of resonated with me in that way. you know, personally. And then I was also showing them to lots of other people and seeing if they re- if they resonated with them as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that idea of seeing with clear, fresh eyes is, is a really, really tricky one, but because I'd spent so much time making pictures that weren't through clear, fresh eyes and were based on mold, old mental habits, um, you know, I, I kind of knew when I found myself taking a picture of something obvious that I was doing that. Um, and I guess, I guess my strategy was just to, to again, follow my instincts, make as many pictures as possible, knowing that I would edit later and be able to kind of find the the ones that really worked within the mix. Mm. Um, Yeah. And, and really, yeah. I I mean, I don't, I don't really know how else to do it. Um, Yeah. It was just really trying to, to kind of, to be present and, and, and recognize when I was getting those sense impressions that so many people talk about. Um, to to make sure, I tried to, to to make a picture that represented that in some form. Mm.
0: Yeah. And when when it's the uh, the obvious stuff, do you, do you find it? Does it help to just take the picture anyway? Just to just yeah. sort of get it out, out yeah, get it out your system. Yeah, I do yeah. it.
1: I mean, I'll take a picture. You know, I can't walk past like an Italian market without taking a picture of a pile of oranges or a pile of, <laughs> you know, like they're so beautifully arranged. They're so beautifully. You know, you know, and there, there's always sure. like one blood orange that's cut open halfway and it's oozing. Yeah, yeah. And you just take the picture, you know, it's like the perfect Instagram, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Instagram of a image. Um, but yeah, just I just get it out of my system and then think like, is there something here that's less obvious? Is there something, mm. you know, what's behind me? What's underneath this? What's, you know, what's around the corner, um, mm. you know, um, and try to, yeah, try to kind of like refresh again, refresh your eyes and kind of see in other ways. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I have yeah, I I do try to get that out of my system. Mm.
0: Um, well, it looks uh, really fascinating. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing an actual proper physical copy, Aaron, because I haven't got one, obviously. But I'm, I've got I've got the images on on a screen is the best I could do. And um, obviously, people can order a copy from Mac from the website. Um, you can still order a copy of. Slant, but it's expensive. I warn them. I might have to talk to you about whether you can sort me out with a copy of that. Um, I'm not not for free or anything. I'm not. No, no, no. Being, of course. Uh, no, no. But, um, my stock but maybe, is very low
1: already. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: You know, it's it's a very desirable book, and that's why it's uh, expensive. But um, I, I want to do the bonus questions for the for the members. So um, thanks so much for chatting out. It's been really fascinating to hear about your story, and I really appreciate you to give me the time
1: yeah no thanks for inviting me I' really I really enjoyed it thank you.